Thank you for tuning into the Freedom Church Podcast, where you can catch our Sunday sermon on demand at any time. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on any of the content that's shared every week at our local church in Round Rock, Texas. Here's this week's sermon. There's a growing concern among physicians and healthcare practitioners about a new condition called cyberchondria. It's where patients do research and find symptoms online of rare diseases and illnesses, and and it causes a state of mental anxiety. And and they found out as people are reading these symptoms, they begin to develop more symptoms and pointless fears and all kinds of anxiety trying to diagnose their own problem. How many of you guys have ever done that? Like you have this excruciating headache, and you try to Google and research exactly where the headache comes from, and they're not finding anything. Like, I got a brain tumor, right? Or... Or maybe you get the sniffles and it just doesn't go away. It's persisting. And before you know it, you are convinced you got an incurable case of Ebola. (laughs) Let me share with you some real life stories of people who actually misdiagnose themselves. One person wrote uh, about this girl who woke up and felt pain in her abdomen. She thought it was gallstones. So she called the ambulance. So the doctor said, once they found it, it's not gallstones, ma'am. You know what it is? It's trapped gas. Homegirl had Mexican food the night before. (laughs) One doctor wrote, one time a frantic mother brought her child in for a terrible rash that would not go away. After looking closely at the rash, it wasn't a rash. It was a marker. (laughs) Oh, Warnie, this one's a little bit cringy, but uh, it's one of my favorites. So I decided to include it. (laughs) I once went number two at work, checked the wipe and freaked out because it was red and bloody. I nearly nearly went into a full-blown panic attack before I realized I had beetroot salad the previous day. First and last time eating beetroot, okay? Just so you can know. This last one was OC's favorite, so I'll put it in there. So... There was a doctor in his residency, a very obese lady came complaining about a lump that she had developed underneath one of of her fat rolls. The doctor lifted up the fat roll to take a look only to find out the lump was just a full-size Twinkie that was stuck in her leg. (laughs) Wow. I don't know if that one is true or not, but they said it was. I don't know. Everything's true on the internet, right? This morning, we're continuing our series in the Minor Prophets by looking at the book of Joel. In this book, the prophet Joel writes to diagnose the real problem in Israel. There's all these false problems, and this book was written in a time when a lot of things that were going wrong in Israel. They had some really bad kings. They had suffered through a national plague, and we'll see him use that as a metaphor in this book. There was civil unrest, economic problems. The stock market was down. Foreign trade was low. Interest rates were skyrocketing. Everyone believed the country was headed in the wrong direction. In the book of Joel, Joel, it reminds me of a story I heard about a guy who went to the doctor, and he went to the doctor, and he says, everything hurts in my body. And the doctor said, okay, can you point to me where it hurts? So he pointed to his head and says, it hurts right here. Then he pointed to his shoulder and says, it hurts right here. Then he pointed to his abdomen and it says, it hurts right here. And then he pointed to his knee and he says, it hurts right here. The doctor looked at him, slapped him and says, you dummy, you got a dislocated finger. (laughs) 
And the book of Joel is going to tell us where Israel's real problem is coming from. It's a short book. It only has three chapters. And Joel is the second of the minor prophets. Yet it's one of the earliest recorded prophets in the entire Bible. And most people miss that because the book comes so late in the Old Testament. But as you know, if you might not know, the Old Testament is not arranged in chronological order. We don't know a lot about Joel's background other than the fact that his father was Pethiel, the, te- the text tells us. But most scholars believe that he was a student of Elisha. He grew up in the time of Elijah and Elisha and that he went to one of the school of prophets. Joel's name means Yahweh is God. And I've broken down the book of Joel into three statements that we will unpack this morning. The first statement is sin brings destruction, repentance brings restoration, and God's spirit brings resurrection power. Let's look at the first statement that we're going to unpack. Sin brings destruction. Joel opens up with his book with a description of sin. He lets it know, he lets all of Israel know this is the real power, the real problem in Israel. And he uses this metaphor of a gigantic locust plague. Look at Joel chapter 1, verse 4. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying oak locust has eaten. And I want you to notice the progressive nature of the locust. It goes from cutting to swarming, then hopping, and finally destroying. It's going to give us a big picture of what sin does in our lives. And those of you that don't, don't know what locusts is, our locusts are these nasty animals. They're three inches long and they look like grasshopper on steroids. I like to use illustrations because it's, it's kind of hard to explain. But I want you to watch this video and you're going to see locusts in action. Check out the screens. When it comes to bugs, few sights are more impressive than this. For sheer destruction, nothing beats these guys. They can travel hundreds of miles a day and cover 150 square miles or more. In one terrible binge, they can destroy the livelihood of a tenth of the world's human population. Wow. Thank the Lord we've never had a locust plague in our part of the world. But locusts have been known to take over an area and absolutely ravage it. In 1915, there was a recorded locust plague that came on Jerusalem and nearby Syria. Observers said one March day, swarms of locusts just appeared in the sky. It made it so thick that they could not even see the sun. Immediately, the locusts began to dig holes in the soil about four inches deep and about a half inch wide, and they started depositing a hundred eggs in each hole. I want you to see these eggs are nasty. Ugh. You see those run. That's worse than lice, you know. The way locusts, it's pretty creepy. They neatly form these cones. They're about an inch long and they're about as thick as a pencil. And that's what those eggs do. And according to reports, these holes were literally everywhere. About 70,000 eggs would be concentrated over a single square yard of soil. These patches covered the ground for miles and miles and miles. They stay there what it looked like harmlessly, but within a few weeks, These young locusts hatched, resembling large ants, devouring all the vegetation and all in their past. They started off walking, and then they started hopping. A few weeks weeks later, they developed wings, and, and they began to swarm over areas that had already been devoured, and they destroyed all the plant life left in it. The sound of their swarms was so terrifying, people couldn't handle it. Witness said that within a few days, literally everything living was gone. And, and you take some pictures, the pictures aren't as, they're, they're not graphic because basically I was trying to find a picture to illustrate this, but these pictures that they have, it's just desert 
and dead trees. They would eat the bark off the trees. It was like a nuclear holocaust had come to the area. And what they say is they got more desperate for food. They swarmed into the houses. They started eating the food, or eating the clothes, eating the fabric, eating the wood. Locusts are like middle school boys at a pizza party. They don't stop eating. And this is what Joel says. Like the locust plague, the devastating power of sin is total. Gradually destroying everything in its path. What a powerful description of sin. And over the years, undoubtedly, the saddest thing I've seen as a pastor is the effect of sin in people's lives. I've seen families destroyed, beautiful families, families with the call of God because of lust or adultery. And all of a sudden, I've seen the kids go into chaos. Nothing more heartbreaking. I've seen people with the call of God, with purpose in their lives, love Jesus. And then all of a sudden, they had some unchecked appetites and unchecked desires. They got involved in relationships, weren't the best. And all of a sudden, their lives become devastated and the reason that sin is so dangerous is because we don't usually see or feel the consequences of the sin immediately it starts off what like seems to be harmless it's in this case of the locust it's an unhatched egg just an innocent thing it's just one lie just one click it's just one night i mean it's just one time nobody will ever know it's just one compromise i'll take that i can handle a couple more drinks but here's what i know sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go it'll always keep you longer than you wanted to stay and it'll cost you far more than you ever wanted to pay sin reminds me of the eskimo hunter when he kills the wolf first they, what they say is the eskimo finds a knife blade and he coats it with animal blood and he allows it to freeze. Then he adds layer and layer of blood till it's completely concealed. That, 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 that knife is concealed in blood. And then the hunter puts it in the ground and fixes it upwards. And the wolf with that carnivorous appetite begins to have the scent of blood. And he is drawn to the blood and he begins to lick that sword. He is absolutely enthralled with the taste and the appetite of the blood because it begins to, he loves the, the, the taste of blood, but little does he know as he licks and he licks and he licks more vigorously. All of a sudden, he's licking the blade and the blood gets warmer and he does not even know it that his tongue is being shredded like ribbons and before he knows it, he begins to bleed profusely and by the end of the day, the wolf is left dead. And that is a great imagery of sin. Joel uses an image of the locust plague as an illustration of Israel's sin and its consequences. And if you read chapter 1, Joel tells us how this locust plague has affected everyone. In verse 2, he says, Israel has no wine because the vines have been destroyed. In verse 5, he says, the priests have no grain and oil nor grapes. They have nothing to offer God, so they can't even worship God. In verse 20, he says, the animals are affected. They have nothing to eat. And notice that Sin affects our ability to find joy. It affects our ability to worship God. And it leaves us hungry because let me explain this to you. Joel is giving us these very intentional images that you try, when we try to find joy outside of God in sin, it'll always leave us wanting. Bibles, the Bible says that in the Bible, wine was equated and connected with joy. But since there's no wine, there's no joy. And sin will always demand, but it will never give. 
And what's interesting, too, is because of this locust plague, they had, they had no oil, they had no grain, they had nothing to offer God. And what happens with sin is sin begins to take what you should offer God, and it begins to eat it up. It takes your emotions, it takes your passions, it takes your resources. And instead of giving it to God, the one who gave you everything, sin eats us up. And all of a sudden, what happens is we come as people, and we have no desire for God, no desire for worship, no desire to lift our hands. We come in because sin destroys our appetite for God and it leaves us hungry these are some heavy images that the prophet Joel has given us because whenever we break God's laws and whenever we do what we want to do instead of what God says it creates all kinds of problems and chaos in our life see anxiety, fear, stress those aren't the problems, they're just pointed to bigger problems, sin see the laws that God gave us in life and his commands are supposed to rule over our lives. See, God is not some type of killjoy. He doesn't say, do this because I want to keep you from joy. But he has given us his laws for human flourishing. He created us and he knows how we function best. And we see this in the creation account, for example. When God created the earth, what does the Bible say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over there. But then the whole Bible says, and then God spoke into the darkness and all kinds of light and vegetation and creation. Creation started coming from the word of God. And that's exactly what God does when there's darkness. God's word comes. He does this intentionally. And God's word brings life and beauty and creativity. And God's word begins to shape everything and bring beauty in our lives. But when our lives are absent of God's word, there is void and darkness and confusion. You see why the Bible begins to speak all these different things. The Bible is ultimately the story of God's redemption and his story of everything. Everything fits together in Scripture. That's why, for example, every time God brings judgment, it's always related to the earth. That's why if you look at the ten plagues of Egypt, they're not just some cool magic tricks where God shows off. Look how awesome I am and look how horrible you are. No, these plagues illustrate to Pharaoh's rebellion what he was doing to the world. As you look at the plagues, it begins, God begins to turn creation against itself. The, the river turns to blood, locusts comes, frog comes. And it says because of your disobedience, what happens is the world begins to fall apart. And we see that here in the picture of the locusts. The locust is a warning for Israel about what sin does, but ultimately it's a bigger warning of a judgment to come. There's something more terrible than locusts is coming. And listen how Joel prophesies about the upcoming Assyrian captivity where Israel is going to be taken and they're going to be taken into captivity by an army. In Joel 1.6, he says, For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number, like the locusts. Its teeth are lions', are lions teeth. And you'll begin to look at the rest of Scripture. It'll leave nothing in its path. And what we're seeing in all of this is an illustration of what theologians call the passive and active dimensions of the wrath of God and how they work together. And I'm going to teach you what it cost me tens of thousands of dollars to learn in Bible college. So here's, the, here's what the pass, passive wrath of God means. Is God allowing us to suffer the natural consequences of sin? And the active wrath is this. It's the lightning bolt of judgment from heaven. And God's wrath it comes on creation. Maybe it's passive wrath, it's active wrath. 
And what happens in God's active wrath, he affirms and extends what we have already chosen for ourselves. Let me give you for examples. Talk about when sin first came to the world in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sinned and God cast them out of his presence. That's the active wrath of God coming in there. But what happens is Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden, they had hidden themselves from the presence of God. They were hiding. So God is already affirming what Adam and Eve decided to do. You decided to get away from my presence. So I am going to let you get away from my presence. So go ahead and go. And one of the worst things in our lives is when God gives us what we want. You see that as God deals with Pharaoh. The Bible talks about that he hardened Pharaoh's heart, but he didn't harden Pharaoh's heart until the Bible says that Pharaoh kept hardening in his heart, hardening in his heart. He gave God gave him an opportunity. Let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. He wouldn't let his people go. He says, okay, you're not going to let my people go. I'm going to let you have what you want, Pharaoh. In fact, the way Jesus describes hell itself, which is the ultimate display of the wrath of God, shows it to be an extension of God's wrath. Sometimes we miss that because the Jewish metaphors that Jesus uses, they're unfamiliar to us. We don't understand it. We read the Bible from a 21st century perspective. But these metaphors that Jesus uses to describe hell are powerful metaphors. And these images point to something far worse, but let's, let's read them. That's how Jesus described hell. It's a place where the worm does not die. That's an image of a conscience that's being eaten away by guilt and regret. The outer darkness, that's the to that's total absence of all of God's goodness and grace in our lives. The gnashing of teeth, it's an image of self-condemnation and self-loathing. Fire, it's the agony of God's displeasure. Hell is the full fruition of telling God to get out of our life. Like, the, let me tell you something that's so powerful, that's so good to understand, and it's this. God doesn't send anybody to hell. We choose to go there. And what I mean by that, let me unpack that even more. Heaven is where God is. Hell, ultimately, is where God isn't. And every time we make decisions and we say, God, I don't want you, we begin to say, okay, God, uh, life without you. Okay, I'm going to deal with my own regret. I'm going to want to live my life without you. It's like C.S. Lewis said. In the end, we either say to God, thy will be done, or he turns to us and he says, your will be done. And what hell is, is saying, God, I don't want your word in my life. I don't want your presence in my life. I don't want you to, I don't want to follow you. I want to live my own way. I don't want to align my life according to your plans. I want to live like I want to live. And ultimately, God's going to say one day, okay, if you won't want to live my, with me, if you don't want to be in my presence, I love you. I'm going to give you what you want. Go ahead and live life like you want. And ultimately, the full fruition of that is, is hell given over to our desires condemnation not allowing God to take our pain and our hurts it's like C.S. Lewis said in his book The Great Divorce sin is cancer it never stops growing and we live forever and there's a lot of things that wouldn't be we wouldn't need to worry about if we just lived for 70, 80 years but what does it look like for lust and anger and that temper and that jealousy and greed to grow uninhibited in your life for a million years, hell is precisely the term for that place. Here's what I want you to notice. It's a powerful truth. God doesn't destroy. God doesn't judge. God doesn't bring destruction. Sin does. Sin destroys. 
Sin, a life without God is what God is saying. He says, I created you. I love you. I have a plan and a purpose for you. Don't live without me because if you do, it's not going to be a good thing. And when you understand that, you'll start to see any earthly experience of God's judgment, like this plague of locusts, as an expression of God's mercy on your life. That God is trying to let us see where sin is taking us before it's too late. And one of the most gripping illustrations of that is I heard a story years ago of a famous Christian leader who once had a big TV network and God was doing some things through him, but he got caught up in a scandal and did some things that caught him up in jail. And one day when he was in jail, Billy Graham went to his jail cell and started talking to him. And one of Billy Graham's, Billy Graham's colleagues began to talk to this man. And he says, how do you feel like, how, what make, how do you feel that God has judged you in this This ex-pastor, he says, man, this is not God's judgment. This is God's mercy on my life. Because if God would allow me to keep living the way of living and doing the things that I was doing, I would be in a far worse place than I am right now. So this jail cell is not the judgment of God. Because guess what? I have another chance and I can spend eternity with him. This is God's mercy on my life. And maybe you feel like the locusts are eating away at every part of your life. You're trying to save money, but God keeps letting stuff break down. You're trying to get better in your marriage, but new issues of conflict keep rising up. You're trying everything to be positive and happy, but the more you try, the emptier you feel on the inside. See, if you're constantly finding an escape, if you're constantly trying to find things to make you happy, like work or shopping or money or resources or pornography or drinking, that means there's something rotten in the inside of you, and God is trying to wake you up. Sometimes the things that we're going through, God is by his mercy. He sent the locust to say, hey, don't walk there. Judgment is coming. I'm letting everything fall apart because I want you to come back to me. See, a lot of people, when they come to church, they don't really want real change. They want God to fix what's wrong in that one little area of their life. They're like, God, hey, snap, slap a new Moral coat of paint on my life. Make me a little bit better. Scrub away the rest. That's what I want, God. Just kind of add on to what I'm building. But God doesn't want just to polish up the old. He wants to make you a new person. God doesn't want you to turn over a new leaf. He wants you to have a brand new life. If you forgive me, I'll quote C.S. Lewis one more time. Because he breaks this down so powerfully in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this. Many people come to God because they realize their house is broken down and they need God to fix it. And at first, they understand what God is doing. He gets the drains right. He takes the mold out of the walls. He stops the leaking in the roof. And you know these jobs needed to be done, so you're not surprised. But then, let me tell you, as God works in your life, there's always going to be a but then. God starts knocking out knocking the house down about in a way that hurts. You're like, God, what are you doing? I like that wall, that shake carpet, that popcorn ceilings. I love that. It doesn't make any sense to you. And you're asking yourself, what on earth is God up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's putting a new wing here. He's putting an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little college, but he is building a palace that he himself intends to live in. That's what God is doing in your life. 
the problems, the chaos, the struggle. He's saying, man, so many times he says, okay, I'll let you have your way in the finances. I'll let you have your way in your marriage. I'll let you do all this, but I'm going to show you that your way doesn't work. The locust will come. It'll eat it up. And through that, he's saying, I want you to come to me. It's not popular preaching, right? It's the Bible. And we might be happy with the little changes that God is making, but God is up so much more. God doesn't like it. He says, I'll rip it up. And here's my question for you. Is there something in your life that you're asking God to take away when he could be sending you a warning through it? I'll ask you again. Is there something in your life that you're saying, God, take this away? And it's not something he's taking away. He's sending you a warning that that area of your life needs to come and be in submission to me. When we listen to God's warning, here's a beautiful thing in the Bible that brings restoration. The second thing in the book of Joel teaches us is this. Repentance brings restoration. Look at Joel 2.12. Yet in the midst, yet you've done all these things. Though you've given yourself to all that stuff. Though the locusts are on you. He says, yet even now. Yet even now, declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart. With fasting, with weeping, with mourning. And rend your hearts. That word rend means tear and not your garments. Repent is a beautiful word with a bad reputation. When most people hear the word repent, they picture this crazy guy holding up a sign yelling at people. Maybe you've seen this guy. He's telling you how wicked you are everywhere you go. And we're like, man, Benito, they, they have repent stuff. That's Old Testament. That, that, that's, not, that's not New Testament stuff. Let me tell you, when Jesus started off his ministry, the first thing he said was repent. When Jesus sent out his disciples, he told them, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When the church was launched in Acts chapter 3, Paul and Peter preached a message of repentance. And the word repent means simply return. A roundabout change. And look at the words that Joel uses to describe the repentance that God is after. With all your heart. Fasting, weeping, tear your hearts, not your garments. This is not repentance that comes not from ritualistic uh, activities. It doesn't come from religious ceremonies. This is a repentance that comes from deep in your heart. This type of repentance only comes when we understand the amazing love of God for us. And look at Joel's appeal. Look at why he tells us this is why you should repent, Israel. This is why you should repent, Freedom Church. This is why. He says, return to the Lord your God. Why? Points to his character. For he is gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. And he's abounding in steadfast love. Look at who God is. Look at how much he loves you. He says true repentance comes from understanding the love of God for you. And that will produce the love of God in you. This is why Hosea is the first book in the Minor Prophets. It's not an accident. His love for you is demonstrated in how he comes for you faithfully again and again and again and again. And he wants to be your bridegroom. But like Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, There's, there must be divorce between you and sin before there can be a marriage between you and Christ. But look what Joel says, what happens when we repent. Chapter 2, verse 25, one of my favorite verses in the entire Old Testament. Look at this. I will restore 
Circle, underline, highlight, smiley face, that word restore. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. My great army, which I sent among you. I'm sending an army of God. I'm sending all of heaven. I'm sending everything in your behalf. And guess what I'm going to do? I have one assignment. I am going to restore. What an amazing promise. Man, this is retroactive restoration. Have you ever like had a deal and all of a sudden, oh, we're going to pay back for all these years you didn't even know about? You're like, thank you, God, yes. You didn't even know I was getting anything back there. But God will go back and he'll make up, this is a beautiful promise, he'll make up in your life what sin destroyed years ago. What sin destroyed, what abuse destroyed, what happened in your life relational, financially, emotionally, God will restore it. Sometimes you'll experience it here on earth. Other aspects you won't experience till you get to eternity because we were not created just to live here on earth. But here's the promise of God. I promise you I will restore everything. See, here's the, God, here's the plan of God for you, according to Joel. He wants to love you and he wants to restore you. One of the things I love about my wife is she's so creative and awesome and she's just one of the most godly ladies I know. But she also helps me save a lot of money. She married a church planter. That pretty much at one time, that means you're homeless and unemployed when you first started the church, right? That's a, and and uh, there was times in our lives where we were poor, like poor. We couldn't afford the R, poor. You know, and, uh, and when we came in here, God had spoken to us to sell our furniture and, and, and give the money away. And when we, we moved here, literally without any furniture. But you know what my wife does? She's so creative. I call her the dumpster diva. Where she goes and on Tuesdays, she would go out and right, in our neighborhood, they throw out all kinds of nice furniture, right? Because like, they threw that away. So we're the, we're the people in the yard picking up the stuff and putting it in our heart. Like, why are they taking that? That's us, right? And Jennifer goes out there and she does this. She works all this beauty and does all these amazing things. Some of you guys have been to our house. You're like, where did you buy that? Well, Jennifer restored it. She found this in the trash. She found this outside. And, and if we go to our house, everything... Mostly, uh, there was a time when almost everything there was something that she restored that was even nicer than when it first came out. And that's what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to restore us. He wants to make us new. Though sin threw us on the curb, he wants to pick us up, and he wants to make everything right. So here's my question to you. What has sin destroyed in your life? Has it destroyed your heart? Are you heartbroken? Has it destroyed your family? Has past decisions made you think that your life is a mess and you're beyond repair? Has sin destroyed your future? Let me tell you this. Here's the promise that Joel says. Return to me, says the Lord, and I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. Your life is not over. You see, you're not dead yet. God's not done yet. If you return to God, he promises to restore you. So the prophet Joel tells us this. Sin brings destruction. Repentance brings restoration. And finally, he gives us a powerful promise that God's spirit will bring resurrection power. Joel 2.28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on my male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. And fast forward this story. To Jesus Christ dying on the cross. The church is praying and fasting and waiting. And after fasting, God says, it's time to go. Peter gets up and he preaches a message of repentance. If you read, look at Acts chapter 3. He preaches a message of repentance. After he preaches a message of repentance, 3,000 people come and are saved. Man, they're 
filled with the power of the Spirit of God. And then by the Spirit of God, Joel goes back to the verse that we just read. He says, you know what? You know what this is? This is what was prophesied to us in the book of Joel. Joel says there's coming a time where I'm going to pour out my spirit and all flesh. Where the very Spirit of God will give you more pleasure than anything in this world. It'll give you more satisfaction. It'll satisfy you. It'll meet your needs. And He'll come and live inside of you. And that time is right now. He is among us. That the, You realize that the very same Spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives in you. That the very same Spirit that spoke the world into existence is inside of you. I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, Hey, God's Spirit is inside of you. Look at me. Turn your... I, I, I know you don't look like it, but it is. God's Spirit wants to live inside of us. That's the promise. So, you know, years ago I told you to use an illustration of some balloons. So if you can bring me the balloons, I want to use this one more time. I want to illustrate what God's Spirit does in our lives. God's Spirit fills us in a way that we can never in ourselves. Because before the Holy Spirit, we try in ourselves, like, I'm going to be good. I'm going to do the right decision. I got, man, I mean, we're constantly being hit. And then when we come to church, like, oh, that's a good message. Good preaching, Pastor Preacher. I feel good. I'm up. I love it. But then, oh, bad. It's Monday. It comes. Then you're like, oh, and then you just get exhausted of hitting the balloon all the time, right? Like, oh, you're like, oh, oh, it's hard to keep it up. But he says, there's coming a day where my spirit will fill you up. And he will do what you can never do on your own. And you can live in resurrection power. A life that you can never have. The Spirit of God wants to move in you. I want to live in you. And the Holy Spirit has a job for us. What does it say? He says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. You know the number one way you know the Holy Spirit is in your life? You can't shut up about it. You can't shut up about Jesus. You tell everybody. That's what happens when you fall in love. How many of you guys have an annoying co-worker that's just dating somebody and you? And they're like, ah, we're in dating here. We're in there. Like, shut up. You're like, ah. Or like, man, you see somebody that's barely, uh, barely got engaged. You're like, man, praise the Lord. Get the bling bling right there. They're letting everybody know about it, right? Or it's like when somebody gets excited about their team winning. That's why people get so annoyed with us Dallas Cowboy fans. We win all the time, five Super Bowls. I know it's been 20-some years. But every time we win, we can't help but say, man, because it doesn't happen all the time. What do we say that annoys everybody? How about them cowboys, right? Yes. Or how about this? Everybody I've ever known who has remodeled their house has people over for dinner right away. They're like, they're, they're right there on the counter. Slowly moving the thing over. Oh, that's new. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you about it. I'm showing you everything right there. I'm going to ship back there. And they're showing everybody about all that. See, when God restores you, you're going to, tell, you're going to want to tell somebody about it. When the Spirit of God is inside of you, and He doesn't want you to make, He doesn't want to give you goosebumps. He doesn't want you to feel better. The number one purpose is He wants a witness. And is that happening in your life? Are you telling your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors? Does everybody know about the restored life that God has done for you? And you say, Benito, wow, this message kind of went down there. Like, what happened to all that wrath of God stuff and sin? What happened to the hordes of locusts? That's a great question. Throughout the book, Joel keeps talking about 
the theme of his book is this, the day of the Lord. You'll read it over and over and he'll talk about the day of the Lord and the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord means there's coming to come a day when we're going to stand before God and he will pull out, pour out his judgment on sin and the earth once and for all. And on that day, Joel chapter 2, verse 31 says this, that the sin will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. But Paul said in Romans that Joel was referring, what Joel was referring to back then was fulfilled on the cross. That when Jesus died, the sin was darkened. The locust of God's wrath devoured the body of Christ. Jesus was sent into exile and removed from the presence of God because of our sin. Jesus took our sin. He took our judgment so that nothing but the power of God and the Holy Spirit and the resurrection power will remain for us. See, the day of the Lord is coming for every one of us. But here's the thing, when, because of what Jesus did, our day of the Lord would be about renewal and restoration and redemption and resurrection power that we're no longer dead. And the book of Joel says, that's what your day of the Lord is all about because of what Jesus did on the cross. And here's a question. Do you have that resurrection power in your life? Is it active in your life? Is it moving in your life? Is it moving in our church? And Joel would bring us back to that same question. What's the problem? It's not. It's not that there's liberals or millennials. Are we going to reach millennials? Oh. Everything's so wicked out there. Oh, people are so bad. Nobody cares about God. The church is dying. Oh, God, where are you? And God's saying, the problem is not there. It's not there. It's not there. It's here. It's here. Here's the problem. That we're so, so, so casual about sin. So, so comfortable with sin. So, so apathetic with sin. That we let sin live in our lives and we have no desperation and no desire and no passion and no hunger for God. I've heard it been said like this, that sin is like a diet pill that promises you've taken this diet pill, you'll kill your appetite. What sin does is it kills your appetite for God. Kills your passion for God, kills your emotion, kills all these things that, that we should be thinking about God. See, let me tell you, God has not changed. God is still a restorer. God is still a redeemer. God's spirit still wants to move. God can still do the impossible. God still wants to rise up a church. God still wants to redeem the world. God's plan has not changed. This is why Isaiah says this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, which means sin, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This is not a message you preach on church growth, right? It's not a comfortable message, but it's the gospel. How badly do you want God's presence in your life, in your church, in your family, in our community? You know the answer to that? As seriously as you take sin and as severely as you hunger for God's presence. Do we really want God to move? 
Do we really desire for Him in our lives? Or are we going to get filled with the stuff of this world? And God, according to Joel, He's looking for a people who are heartbroken over their sin and would hunger after Him with fasting and broken hearts and with passion. That's why D.L. Moody said, if you give me 100 men who hate nothing but sin, who hate nothing but sin and love nothing but God, I will give you someone that will change the world. God's looking for people that would say, God, I, I don't need a better marriage. I don't need a little more financial help. What I need is your presence and your power. I need you in the center of my life. And it's not in the center of my life right now. So, Lord, for the next three days, I'm just going to tell you I need you. God, even though I'm hungry, I need you. I desire you. He's looking for somebody that's going to wake up on a Tuesday and say, God, I'm going to go hungry throughout this day. And that hunger is going to tell me I need you, God. I'm not okay with where I'm at. I'm not okay living in sin. I'm not okay allowing that little attitude in my life. I'm not okay being controlled by my impulses. I'm not okay, Lord. I'm not okay. That's what he's looking for. Somebody that would be hungry for him. Somebody that says, God, I would need your power in my life and in my family and in our church. And I'm heartbroken, God, that my life does not reflect your resurrection power. I'm a heartbroken, God. That I'm not telling others about you. I'm a heartbroken God that my heart does not beat for the world. And God, I'm sending some time right now. And I'm telling you, God, I need you. Oh, Lord. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled, the scripture says. God is looking for people who cry and say, I'm not okay with my kids not knowing Jesus. I'm not okay with my kids not having an encounter with God. Lord, would you do that more than anything? He's looking for a church to say, God, I'm not okay with the amount of people in my community that don't know you. I'm not okay with marriages falling apart. I'm not okay with all the destruction that we have. I'm not okay with this gun. But Lord, every once in a while, every once in a while, there'll be a man of God like a David Wilkerson who tells a story when he went to Pennsylvania and he read everything that was going on and he fasted and he prayed for days and he said, God, I'm not okay. Just preaching, I'm not okay. Just go, God, I'm not okay. Freedom Church, are you okay with where we're at? Are you okay where you're at? I'm challenging you. I want you to hear my heart. I'm not okay. Just doing church, I'm not okay. Just singing songs, I'm not okay. I want God's presence. I don't want sin to control my life. I want His presence. And nothing will rend that more than fasting. And you say, God, I need you. Desire you. When everybody by your head and close your eyes. Thanks again for listening to the Freedom Church Podcast. We hope that you were inspired and motivated to continue to grow in your faith. Don't forget to subscribe and share with others.